Welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you interesting guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jaya Brecky on dissensus and zero-knowledge proofs, as well as Dr. Darcy Allen from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Right. Yeah, very good to be here. So kicking off, it would be great to know a little bit more about your work and uh, perhaps your discipline as well in terms of how that work is framed in relation to blockchain. Yeah, that is a very good question because my background is actually from quite a few different disciplines. Um, but most, my most recent home, let's say, has been geography. That's kind of my most comfortable academic home. Um, and I think, you know, when we're talking about decentralized technologies, geography is an extremely interesting lens because decentralization and especially decentralized networks kind of interact with, um, let's say, geopolitics and uh, also kind of the, econ- the political economies of geopolitics in very interesting ways. Um, there's a lot of quite fascinating uh, work being done in the discipline of geography also on how to kind of think through digital technologies as spaces. And I think that's a very useful lens as well. Um, so that's kind of my my academic home, let's say. But apart from that, I have a kind of broad background uh, between the arts, um, passed through political economy at a younger age, and then been working kind of more, um, let's say, in the technical field, uh, like practically with um, a lot of writing and and in my new role, especially for a company called NIM, which is a privacy company that is using zero knowledge proofs um, as part of a kind of bigger uh, project of uh, mixed nets. Um, yeah, so hopefully we'll get around to all those different hats. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, broadly speaking, where I got, how I got to blockchain was in um, through earlier work that I was working on in Europe. There was a European Commission project called Decent back in the day that was quite early on looking at the kind of politics of the new data economies that were emerging. And this was super early on in the history of blockchain. This was in 2011, I believe it was. And when I first read the Bitcoin white paper um, and became quite interested in the blockchain aspect and the question of data and data governance um, that was kind of looked like it was beginning to become possible with these types of technologies. So perhaps starting very kind of what is so many interesting threads there, how do you conceptualize of decentralization in decentralized technologies? Because you have a really great um, co-contributed glossary entry in Internet Policy Review, which I just saw kind of come out as a Um, a brief article on that so it'd be great um, starting point for our listeners yeah so the way I approach decentralization is really to try and kind of understand how it plays out quite differently when we're talking about technical architectures and when we're talking about social relations and when we're talking about political institutions and so on Um, I think there's a lot of like hopes and dreams that come with the idea of decentralization that is kind of like loosely connected to a form of democratization and the idea of equal participation of individuals and so on. Um, And that 
like seeps into a lot of the the hopes and dreams of blockchain technology as well but if we look at the kind of history of decentralized networks specifically and decentralized computational networks there is another set of dynamics that are playing out there that um, are more connected to uh, questions of information security and questions of geopolitics and security politics in general so you know, I think when, you know, my approach to kind of analyzing decentralization when it, as it relates to technology is very much to try and kind of really pay attention to what's going on um, across the different, uh, the kind of different layers of decentralization, let's say. So, um, and the reason why I think it's important to distinguish between these different layers is because you can have, you know, a decentralized tech technical network that might not exactly produce decentralizing effects in the social field and might not exactly produce decentralizing effects in the economic field either. So, you know, people tend to conflate these things quite easily and tend to think like, OK, so, you know, let's let's decentralize. Um, yeah, let's have a decentralized uh, internet or decentralized uh, network, and somehow that's going to automatically decentralize power, and somehow that's automatically going to be, you know, good for humanity. When actually, you know, many times what we see is is like concentrations of power that is exactly enabled by uh, decentralization in other areas. Um, so that's why. You know, that's why I kind of I like to distinguish between these. And I think from an academic perspective also, I think it's, it, you know, to be more precise on what we're talking about um, also opens up some much more interesting histories that we can trace through. So, you know, for me, I, I find it fascinating to look at uh, decentralized uh, computational networks and the kind of information security theories and ideas that have come out of that space and how that actually how that actually really works um, without necessarily uh without necessarily conflating it with a, a very different uh, academic study of, say, for example, social movements and, you know, um, the Occupy movement or the Arab Spring or like other areas where we also see decentralization and the vocabularies around decentralization play out like in very, in very important ways. Um, and there are overlaps, there are absolutely overlaps. So, you know, in in a, in another recent paper that that um, I've just put out with uh, Francesca Pig and, and Kate Beecroft, um, we do kind of bring in some, you know, we bring together uh, some of the theories from social movements with some of the studies of decentralized networks because there is a kind of social overlap. So you see some people that used to be involved in, decentralized social movements that then get involved in developing uh, decentralized technologies in a sense. Um. Yeah, I love that approach. I, I think, I mean, looking at the historical context of um, a word, like you say, that can often be conflated is such a great way when we're talking about these socio-technical systems and drawing out, you know, what's in the technology, what's in the social and what is enabling what outcomes in the places that they overlap. And I think that partly brings us to the political, which was largely the focus of your thesis and a recent article that has come out of that on dissensus. So again, it would be fantastic if you could um, explain what that means and uh, what is dissensus and blockchains? So I guess the easiest way to get at that question is to maybe talk through a little bit um, yeah, where, where I was coming from with my thesis. Um, 
when I was studying, so my PhD thesis was a political analysis of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I was looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum, like I said, quite early days. I think I you know, started doing my empirical research literally when the first DevCon of Ethereum um, was going on in London. And um, I noticed that, you know, there was this kind of, there was, you know, the way that, that blockchain was starting to be talked about was, you know, this kind of quite sincere and quite interesting attempt to um, resolve issues of dissensus. So trying to try to arrive at a kind of consensus using this consensus protocol, which, you know, started off from a kind of technical problem, right, of having a decentralized network of computers that all need to arrive at consensus around a ledger. Um, and very quickly, I think because of the, the word, partially because of the words that were being used, but also because of a kind of, um, also because of the, let's say, you know, Bitcoin as the first use case and this, this idea of, um, you know, resolving some issue of uh, monetary governance um, through this new kind of technological protocol. You know, it, let's say consensus protocols became this attempt at resolving disputes by technical means. Mm -hmm. And it became, uh, you know, to my mind, you know, uh, almost like a kind of belief in this capacity of math to resolve the political, you know, like, okay, we can finally, we can finally get to something that is, you know, a universal, uh, a universal set of laws, you know, mathematical laws is a kind of universal set of laws. And we can defer all of our kind of human differences and our human disputes to these mathematical sets of laws. Um, and, you know, in many ways, it was quite fascinating to see this play out but it's also there's a really dark and sinister aspect to that too right because as soon as you start kind of deferring to you know this other this other thing then you start you, you stop losing track of what's really going on in front of your eyes and you stop kind of losing you stop kind of like um uh, your critical mind stops basically you know it becomes a belief in a sense um in some kind of transcendental mathematical laws and in some kind of perfect protocols that you know once these perfect protocols, which look fantastic on a white paper, once they actually are built and, and deployed in the world, you realize that there's all sorts of problems that come up, right? And the interesting thing is like, you see the same dynamic happen over and over and over again in the blockchain space. So, you know, like, you know, when I was studying the Bitcoin scaling conflict and I was studying the, the Ethereum DAO hack, and these were like perfect examples of like, okay, so we've got these perfect protocols um, now we've deployed them, but then it turns out that actually there can be, you know, disagreements about the implementation of a supposedly perfect protocol in real life. Um, so, you know, and that's where I kind of got at this, like, realization that, like, you know, you can create a consensus protocol, but there's not always consensus about the consensus protocol, right? And then what do you do? Um, and so what happened then was you had a kind of uh, deferring you know, you, you created an ex, an, another layer of decentralization. You try and kind of like, okay, so then we need a governance of the consensus protocol. Okay, so fine. So how do we do that governance? Um, and yet again, you know, people try and kind of like put a blockchain on it and resolve it through yet another consensus protocol, um, you know, which in many ways, early DAOs was about that early kind of decentralized autonomous organizations. So there's so much going on there in terms of like, um, first of all, the assumption that, you know, disagreements, 
that there is a kind of transcendental answer to disagreements, you know, that that disagreements and differences um, uh, can be resolved at, on another plane somehow. And, you know, for me, this is where political theory gets interesting, because political theory, and especially the theorists that I'm drawing on, um, uh, Chantal Mouffe and Jacques Vancier, you know, the points that they were making was that, like, actually, politics is exactly about negotiation of, uh, you know, incompatible differences, you know, of differences that are not just, you know, can't just be resolved by deferring to some kind of like higher order of, of logic or something, but are simply, you know, fundamental differences in uh, versions of how reality might play out or should play out or experiences of reality, you know, and what I like about that perspective is that it really does it honors the fact that there are differences and it honors the fact that negotiations can be difficult. Not everybody wins every time. Um, and sometimes that's just reality and that's just, and that can be, you know, okay. And you got to kind of find a way around that. And what's important for that, uh, about that for me also is that it allows for a certain openness, you know, it allows for us to understand that, we're the the world is never done right there is always the possibility for things to be different and there's always the possibility for something new to emerge that actually forces a rene forces a renegotiation of the current order of the world um and for me this is an, a hugely important thing you know um and i think it's a hugely important point also to make especially in the context of you know supposedly universal supposedly kind of um yeah, supposedly universal laws of, of mass, right? Um, which is also, again, you know, to kind of get more academic about it, um, I think, like, studying mathematics as a historical thing rather than a kind of transcendental set of pre-existing laws is also makes for fascinating research to understand that mathematics is something that is also in negotiation. It's also something that's in unfolding and people are, you know, if we take cryptography, for example, you look at the history of cryptography, you have a lot of people that are working very hard at making, you know, these little mathematical things function and then some, and then new people come along and then they don't function anymore. And then they, you know, so they kind of, it becomes something that's more grounded and more real. And this idea of a transcendental final solution to all of our kind of um, our, our differences and our, and our, uh, you know, uh, particularities as um, people in this world, like they don't just kind of magically vanquish. Mm, so interesting. There's, there is so much to unpack here. Um, that's, that's all super interesting. And I love the point that you, you made there, which I think is really important and underappreciated is that we, we've got this new suite of technologies or technology blockchain. Um, and we're also using that same technology to try and govern that technology. So it's not just we've got this new thing that we don't understand that needs to evolve. We're also now using that same technology to build voting systems and so on on top of it. So you've got these, these extra layers of complexity and, and uncertainty. Um, going back to this idea of dissensus, I'd never, um, I'd never really heard of this before. I found it really fascinating. And the line that I took out of your, your paper was this idea of the productive aspects of incompatible differences that is a really important line that this the process of coming to a decision in a collective group 
isn't just the cost. There are actually benefits from that disagreement because we form new opinions, we learn about the world, we interact with people that we haven't before. And I think that's, that's underappreciated. Um, my colleagues and I, Chris Berg and Aaron Lane, wrote a book a few years ago called Crypto Democracy. And we were focused on um, how can this new technology, blockchains and smart contracts and so on, change the way that we create governance systems. And when you start to, the way that we make collective decisions. And when you start to think about that, you start to think, well, what, what is democracy for? Why do we have these collective decision-making processes? And I think there's something that underpins a lot of discussions about collective decisions is that there is some objective, true solution that we will get to. And that it's a, it is a good thing from a collective decision-making system that we have unanimity, that we all agree that no one is um, under the duress of the tyranny of the majority or whatever you would like to call it. And it's underappreciated that, no, there are benefits to having that as well. Um, now, that idea of an objective truth also, I think, underpins a lot of the efforts to create new mechanisms of voting. So we see these formal models of voting to create quadratic voting or commitment voting or conviction voting or whatever you want to call it. Of course, you know that there's so many of these out there. And I think underpinning them when you go quite deeply, not all of them, is this idea that we're trying to get to a true solution. And if we can only tinker the incentives in the right way of the voting mechanism, then we'll solve the problem and everyone agrees. Um, and I, I think that's a little bit troubling and it seems to go against your, your not against your idea of dissensus, but dissensus is really important to have in those conversations. So the question I'd like to ask you is, are you optimistic about the development of these voting systems, such as quadratic voting and all of these things that a lot of the blockchain communities are obsessed about? Um, or should we be focusing on something else in the governance space to, um, to get some of these benefits of dissensus? So it's a, it's a broad question, but what are your thoughts around these experiments that we've got at the moment? I think these experiments are at a crucial point right now of having to really undergo the kind of like test of broader usability. And I don't mean usability just in terms of like interfaces and can people download the voting system? Can people use the, you know, whatever interface is good enough or anything like that, but usability in terms of like making it um, making it relevant for people's day-to-day -day lives and changing the experience of what it means to vote because there is I think the experiments are interesting and I think they're necessary I think like there's a lot about the democratic process as it's generally functions now that's hugely disempowering for a lot of people so you know I welcome the kind of the general experiments that are happening for sure but I think you're right in pointing out that there is this kind of attempts of um, overly tweaking the underlying kind of the, the voting protocols, let's say, um, through all these kind of very elaborate incentive structures where, you know, their actual social effects are really quite kind of, or not quite, but extremely untested. And in fact, most attempts at testing them in real world scenarios just become kind of, they feel overly bureaucratic in a weird way. They feel kind of like overly, you know, uh, like, like it just doesn't, it doesn't kind of make sense on an intuitive level for a lot of people. It, it becomes these kinds of performative things that you do in order to perform the protocol 
rather than it being a, just a tool, um, a means to kind of achieve a, a broader kind of process. So I think like these, I think it's time for these experiments to really be kind of like uh, tested um, in, you know, more and more real world scenarios and, you know, the kind of the, the paper that me and, and Kate and Francesca wrote on uh, the Desensus Protocol is really to try and kind of like show how much, um, you know, when the, basically to show some examples of when these technologies get deployed in real world scenarios, it does feel like an, an overly layered process and overly, there's like, it's like too much protocol, right? It's like, uh, and and it's it's a it's something that again I find really curious and we can kind of trace this not just in terms of voting but in terms of DAOs in general in terms of blockchain um, going back to kind of early on that like you know the the intention the intention was exactly to get rid of of uh, bureaucracies the intention was exactly this kind of idea of disintermediation right to create kind of like more direct interactions between people um you know even from kind of bitcoin early days like the idea was like here we have direct peer-to-peer transactions you know of digital cash and we can kind of get rid of all the different intermediaries that otherwise you know would get involved in digital um transactions and then you you start to pay attention to what actually is happening in in the real world and you have an intense layering of intermediation right um from exchanges to wallet uh, developers to uh, to various apps to all kinds. I mean, there's just, there is just like, and, and the same is happening in terms of the voting systems, right? You just have more and more elaborate incentive schemes that are being created to address hypothetical problems. And I think this, this attempt at trying to solve hypothetical problems uh, beforehand, rather than just simply having a, a, an idea, deploying it, and then see how it plays out in the real world, you know, it really stems from, I think, the point that we're trying to make in the paper. It stems from this idea of trying to finally resolve the problem of the political um, a priori, right? So if we can just like pre, if we can pre-plan, you know, all the potential problems that might come about, then we can fix them all with the incentive scheme, you know. And these incentive schemes, I don't know, it's it. They're to me, they're interesting. They're super interesting as experiments. They're super interesting as games. Um, I get extremely wary though of, uh, the moment when, you know, this kind of, this, this, let's say the desire to, to resolve the political in a final manner. I do get very kind of worried about that because it is, uh, it, it can blind people very easily to what's going on for like, um, let's say the end user in a real way, um, so, and what was the other part to your question was what else we should be paying attention to um, in terms of governance? Let me frame that a different way. And I completely agree with you. I think we, um, there's kind of this focus on the formal aspects of voting, which in my mind are the very end of politics, right? That's the exactly. outcome of the process of politics. And we get obsessed with um who turned out, who voted what way, um, all yeah. that sort of aspects. But that's right at the end. And by obsessing with that, we're not focused on the fact of, hey, isn't it weird that everyone in the Discord and discourse agrees with each other and that our yeah. last five votes have had 99% yes votes? To me, that's exactly. a, to me, that's a bad thing. That's not, that's not a yeah. good thing. Um, so, sorry, just to interrupt you there, that reminds me of another point that I wanted to make, that in the paper, we do draw on... Um, 
social movement theory. And, you know, it, just to speak to the point that you just made of voting being the end point of politics, it was very interesting for us to draw on uh, the work of Marianne Mackelberg, who's done a lot of um, very good uh, um, sociology work on uh, about social movements that she's been involved in. And she talks about the consensus-based decision-making in large assemblies, you know, in large decentralized assemblies in kind of, you know, Occupy-like contexts. And um, there exactly the idea was like, you don't, you know, voting is the last part of the process. The important part of the process is you, you hear all the voices, you get all the perspectives in order for there to be a kind of, let's say, greater collective consciousness that arises around, okay, what is the actual situation that we're dealing with here and who are the people in the room? Um, so I agree with you on that. But it's a painful process. And, you know, speaking from kind of my own personal background as well, you know, uh, decentralized decision-making by consensus is a, can be a terrible experience. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's, it's painful and it's messy and it looks chaotic, but there's value yeah. that comes out of that chaos. Um, Absolutely. It actually reminds me of, so you mentioned right at the start that your background was in geography. Um, what, one of the things that this reminds me of is we, when we talk about cities and when we talk about vibrant cities, we talk about cities having lots of people who disagree with each other, bump into each other, start a company, innovate. Um, these societies, cities tend to be more tolerant. There's a whole bunch of aspects of cities that come out of that sort of disagreement. And it's very obvious in cities. And we don't necessarily talk about, say, a blockchain ecosystem in the same way. Um, but somewhat it's worrying if you're going into a blockchain ecosystem and everyone has exactly the same views you're unlikely to have those sort of um, collisions and creative events and so on that come out of it. So I think, I think that's really interesting going back to that geography um, point that you made at the start. Yeah, for sure. And again, the, to, to think about the kind of spatial aspects of this too, um, or to take your kind of city analogy, there is something about the ability to, um, to not be visible for a while. Like there's something about, so the reason why cities are rich is also because like not everyone is constantly present having to negotiate each other's differences at all times in order to arrive at a complete cohesion, right? Like actually you, you have like little pockets of spaces where subcultures can emerge and, uh, you know, experiment with things and, and define their own kinds of identities. And then, you know, a few people might emerge from that scene that will then interact with someone else from a different scene or whatever else. So like there is a, like the richness is also, also comes from the ability to like, leave and go somewhere else and find some people that you can kind of um, develop something new with and be in a in your own little bubble for a little while and not have to kind of immediately smash up against um, you know the extreme opinions of other people or whatever else but that that happens sometimes in the encounter in public space or in you know certain kinds of spaces but there needs to be in order for for vibrant richness to to be possible there also needs to be pockets where new things can be free to experiment and to kind of emerge yeah that's that's um that's very interesting and the other thing this makes me think about is so we talk about in cities what attracts people to migrate to a particular city 
right? What is it that makes a vibrant city? Is it, you know, the gay bars or is it whatever it happens to be that brings people to a city and makes it innovative um, and dynamic? And what is it about a blockchain ecosystem, for instance, that would attract people to that? How do you bring, how do you bring different views in? At the moment, what we do is we do meme contests or something or do these weird little gimmicks to try and get people to enter an ecosystem. Um, how do we get that kind of migration across blockchain ecosystems that um, that will enable that diversity to sort of emerge? I'm going off on a tangent here, but um, super interesting about cities and geography. It, you wouldn't think that we would think about decentralized magic internet money in this way, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to mention another, because, you know, when you're talking about cities and you're talking about communities that form around kind of different blockchains and stuff, it makes me think of the work of um, Lana Swartz, another excellent academic that's been writing a bit about the crypto space. Um, she's just put out, put out a new book called New Money that talks about transactional communities. And I found that a really another really fascinating lens, um, both like... I mean, for myself coming from a kind of geography background, but I think also, so she comes from a kind of, uh, she's a media scholar. Um, and she takes the idea of, you know, Benedict Anderson's imagined communities as a way to describe nations. She talks about transactional communities. So the idea that actually identity is also very much tied to uh, your means of transaction <laughs> and and increasingly so. And I found that kind of interesting to think about in the kind of um, in the blockchain space, how you have kind of these these identities that are emerging around a form of, of money, and the way that Lana Swartz talks about it is, you know, she she looks at kind of like national currencies and how they came about as a very important part of actually building nations in the first place. Um, yeah, as a kind of mm, communication almost of national identity. And now people want to tear them down, potentially, <laughs> arguably. Yeah, and, and now people want to tear them down and replace them with other forms With of more bureaucracy. Right? Yeah, like yes. you, some of the things you've mentioned are just so insightful and have really described some of my recent experiences in kind of researching DAOs and what's happening in, in the kind of governance of these communities and just the attention required to even enter one community is it's a full-time job like it's um especially in our time zone because we're like a bit a bit ahead of the rest of the world but um yeah massive massive amount of um kind of information processing just to understand what's going on uh, massive and terminology of... right I mean it's also like whole it feels like you know it's like entirely new terminology new words being invented to describe these different processes and stuff it's quite fascinating what, yeah one, one of my colleagues was complaining that people now just use memes to represent their companies or whatever it's just pictures and he's like what is going on because on one hand you've got I mean it makes sense for a community to develop its own language and memes and subculture and so on to build that trust and sharing and pooling of knowledge early on. But it seems like this is in overdrive here and then the barrier to entry for new people is just so high because it's so bewildering that you've got this kind of trade-off. Your community building early on to bootstrap and then people just look at it and go, what is this thing that these people have created? So perhaps to your 
wariness of finality and in respect for a meme that's doing the rounds, I believe by um, Jess from the Token Engineering Commons of governance just as a literal trash bin on fire. Um, I'm curious on both of your thoughts about other governance approaches and frameworks. And I think pulling in governance literature or looking at um, uh, you know other other disciplines, whether it's geography or political economy, um, and kind of looking at some different models that that others have proposed around community governance. Is there certain approaches that either of you are interested in or see as potentially helpful or applicable to this space? So, I mean, personally, there's. Mm, like again, because I I don't I I don't like the idea of a final solution. I don't either have a favorite governance model, right? Because I'm not like this is how we should do things, and then everything will be fine and everything will be good. Um, I find I I actually I mean, uh, like maybe in, in slight contradiction to that the work that I produce, I, I actually find governance really tiresome, <laughs> like to think about to work on, and I and I keep questioning where does that tiredness come from and I think it's because and I think it's the same tiredness that so many people feel when they think about bureaucracy and decision making and endless meetings you know it's it's this this thing of like why can't we just do the thing that we want to do instead of talking about doing the thing that we want to do um, why do we have to go through these arduous decision making processes around this thing that we want to do instead of just doing the thing um, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's where I'm coming from. And so like, you know, there is no, I think governance is, and governance processes are, is extremely important to think through carefully because different governance processes obviously produce very different social um, outcomes and produce, you know, also kind of different kind of cultural outcomes and whatever else. So there's a systemic reason to why, you know, to really think through these things quite carefully. And I think increasingly so with the kinds of problems that we're facing, including climate change and economic breakdown and all kinds of other things. But, um, but the, the, but governance, thinking through governance is not the, uh, is not doing the, the actual work, you know, thinking through governance, finding out like creating more and more elaborate governance systems is not the thing that's going to solve the thing. It's not the thing that will do the thing. Right. Um, so that's where I'm a little bit kind of mm, hesitant on for my side. Like it, that's why I'm a bit hesitant for it to be a kind of like main area of focus. I hear but, you in the, in the point that we, we can't solve governance. Um, Das, did you have thoughts on interesting approaches? I mean, something I've pointed out um, in blogs, I think, is just like Ostrom is everywhere, like popping up in all the different communities about like, oh, Ostrom applies here and um, uh, these ideas of polycentricity as well. And I know that you've done a little bit on that. Of course, it's it's a very big question. Um I think what we've done as academics, which was the right thing to do over the past couple of years, was take existing governance theories or our understandings of governance and apply them to blockchains and go, okay, blockchains are like the internet, so let's try internet governance. Blockchains are like politics, so let's try constitutional design. Um, they're like corporations, let's do 
corporate law and so on and so forth, right? And that's been the process over the last um, couple of years, I would say, and including in the common space, saying that blockchains are like a common shared resource and we can think about them that way. Um, blockchains, I don't think, are any of those things. I, I'm of the belief that blockchains are a new institutional form that have characteristics of all of those ones and it was useful for a short period of time to take some lessons from those existing areas and apply them um, but now that we have this big experimental data set of how governance has evolved and emerged in blockchains over the last 10 years um, I think we need to start building blockchain governance has its own field that doesn't rely on those analogies. So one project that we're working on at the moment um, is using part of Ostrom, Eleanor Ostrom, um, Nobel Prize winning economist, part of her work, um, which isn't necessarily about commons. So Eleanor Ostrom studied a whole bunch of different commons, um, thousands of them, common pool resources, looked at how those communities manage those commons, such as fisheries and forests and so on, and then came up with some design principles after doing that empirical work, right? There was this long empirical research program, and then at the end popped out these design principles, um, such as you should have clearly defined boundaries, you should, uh, the people should be involved in decision-making and so on. So that's, I think, useful, but I don't think it's reasonable to start with the idea that blockchains are commons and see if you can find those design principles within them, right? I think blockchains are a different thing and the underlying research program, the approach that Ostrom took was correct of empirically dissecting these complex layered polycentric systems into their subsequent parts. Um, and then the output was the principles but most people at the moment who've used Commons scholarship in blockchain have taken the principles and tried to apply them to blockchain. Um, so something we're doing at the moment is trying to take this, what Ostrom built was a grammar of institutions. She built this long list of here are all the different possible types of rules and norms and strategies and go out there and map them, see what they look like in these communities and then you'll get some clarity about what's happening. Um, so. I'm, I'm bullish on using Ostrom, but not in the way that she has been used over the last two years in the blockchain space. Don't start with the principles, start with um, using the methodology, which happened to be used for the commons, but could be used for any institutional form. Um, that's, a, that's a long answer to your question, but I think the time of analogizing is over and we need to start building a new, a new understanding, unique understanding of blockchain governance because they look very different to these other institutions. I really appreciate that work. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to what comes out of it. I think like really quite rigorous empirical work is, is really lacking actually um, on that front. So yeah, congratulations. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Thank you. Thanks very much. Because they've made, a lot of these communities have made this governance so bureaucratic and complex and so on. This will take a very long time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, will be very, sure. <laughs> it will be very easy to do for some blockchains, but very hard for others. And the more that they rely on um, informal norms and so on in different online communities, that will be harder to map. Um, but anyway, that's one project that we're working on just through my own work.
And evolutionary as well, that, that word came up, but the pace of, um, of development across uh, different communities. We've talked a lot about blockchain, but I mean, decentralized technology communities and their various, um, you know, protocols or, or tools or cultures um, varies very widely. And I do want to throw in a mention to your piece, Jaya, on hacker engineers and their economies, which I'll put a link to in the show notes because it was one of those things I read and I thought, oh, yeah, like that makes sense. And then it really stuck with me and that's um, that's when you know it's a good idea. Um, so happy to hear more of your thoughts on that, but I wanted to make sure we give time to uh, what you mentioned is kind of a latest obsession around uh, studying cryptography, the history of cryptography and zero knowledge proofs. Um, yeah. And even hearing how you ended up at NIM as well would be fantastic. I got the had the pleasure of interviewing Harry for the decentralized off the shelf report. Um, at CCC when travel was still allowed. Um, so I didn't know you were there. So congratulations yes. on that. And um, please do tell us more. So I, yeah, I recently joined NIM as their writer and strategist and uh, very happy to join them actually. Um, it was kind of, it, it, like, first of all, I know, you know, quite a few people in the company for many, many years now um, and have been following the project. But, uh, you know, for me, I was kind of quite firmly um, rooted in academia for a while. And I had started to develop a research project that was looking at the interactions between zero knowledge proofs and machine learning algorithms and the future of AI. And uh, it's kind of, this is like, it's, to me, this is a really big deal. <laughs> and it's something that I think that I think is uh, going to become a really big deal. And I'm trying to convince people in geography and the social sciences that it's going to become a really big deal, but I have not been so successful at that quite yet. So um, I had applied for a few kind of research grants to do a project looking into the interactions between these two pieces of technology or these two kind of developments, um, but was unsuccessful. And it was right around the time that NIM was looking to expand and I was uh, chatting with, with them um, about their future plans. And in actual fact, one of the most interesting aspects to the NIM architecture is using zero knowledge proofs um, in some very interesting ways. So for me, it was actually a, a pretty perfect opportunity to kind of shift over and work on zero knowledge proofs um, in practice a little bit before I kind of delve into this uh, bigger scheme of mine, this bigger plan to uh, to map out these interactions. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess to kind of maybe explain why I think this interaction is going to be um, quite a big deal going into the future, um, and maybe to try and explain zero knowledge proofs, which is going to be a little bit Please, tricky. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Um, so zero knowledge proofs is a kind of cryptographic technique that allows someone to prove something without having to reveal the evidence. So, you know, to take an example, you could, for example, prove that you're over the age of 18 without having to show any documentation whatsoever that that's the case. But um, there is mathematical certainty that that is the case. Um, 
ha I'll try and kind of explain a little bit more how that works um, in practice. Um, wish me luck, because <laughs> every time I have to explain it, I find that I have to go back to you know reading a bunch of, of papers again because it is actually quite complex. Um, but the fundamental, you know, the, the basic kind of schema is that you'll have a prover. So say me trying to prove to someone that I'm over 18. Um, you'll have uh, an issuer um, who, uh, you know, let's say issues that proof. And then you have a verifier who wants to know that I'm over the age of 18. Um, now the issuer, you know, can be, you know, in the NIM architecture, this is what, this is something that we call attribute based credentials. So the issuer can be like a set of different authorities that each kind of issue some piece of information about me in a kind of, you know, uh, encrypted manner. Um, then the, where the, where the zero knowledge kind of proofs come into it is you run essentially what is a kind of uh, statistical um set of algorithms that kind of calculate the probability of being able to lie in a certain kind of way. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of dreading like any cryptographer actually listening to this and coming back at me on this. But fundamentally, like the idea is that the probability of being able to lie about a, a, a certain kind of credential becomes like smaller and smaller as you run a certain kind of set of evidences over and over and over again. Um, and where the zero knowledge comes in is that you can actually create a simulation of that that contains absolutely zero information about the initial uh, credentials that the issuer um, put out. So there is a kind of total disconnect between like the initial kind of information that the issuer or whatever authorities you know provide, and then the actual um, uh, simulation of that verification process like there's no kind of there's zero kind of information transfer but there is a statistical uh, um, similarity or exactness to the two so fundamentally you have a kind of simulation that is running in the exact same manner as the initial set of proofs but contains no of the actual none of the actual content which uh, is math was is mathematically so similar or so exact that uh, a, a verifier can actually trust that it's true that the information is true or that the proof is true so in practice what does that mean that means that i can for example prove that i'm over the age of 18 without having to show any other information about me and in the nims architecture we want to allow you know we want to allow people to do that sort of things to be able to let's say access and do all kinds of things online um, while remaining basically uh, completely private so it's a kind of like it's a super strong privacy system let's say um, you know nim has a few different components to it but the credentials bit to me was key because not only does it provide privacy it also provides uh, assurances to various people that want to know you know, that you have the right to access certain things, you know, you, you want to be able to know that there is some kind of um, uh, something that's trustworthy here in this interaction. So, you know, the reason why that was so important for me, especially when I kind of decided to join NIM was because like, actually, it, it makes the, a kind of crucial difference between like, here's a, you know, here's a super strong privacy system where nobody can be sure of anything, right? It's just 
pure dark space and anything can happen who knows what right i think that's a kind of that's a power vacuum that usually can be occupied in by not so nice uh types of, of people and organizations um but being able to kind of carefully construct trusted interactions that nevertheless can remain kind of private is actually really quite great um, and the analogy that uh, one of the uh, main engineers, George Denezis, who, who built uh, the initial protocol that NIM is using called Coconut Protocol, um, the analogy that he uses in a few of his talks is the idea of going to the cinema. So, you know, when we go to the cinema, you know, we buy a ticket and that ticket gives us access to the cinema. The person that's taking your ticket doesn't need to know anything else about you. They just know that you have the right to access the cinema. That's it, you know, and that's kind of how you, you know, ideally would like to go about also interactions online. Like, why do people know, need to know all this extra information about you? Why do you, why are you giving, you know, super sensitive data about yourself to completely random services online um, when actually, you know, you should be able to choose what is the exact information that, that they need and nothing more. Um, and to be able to kind of just prove that you have the right to cert do certain things in a secure manner. Um, and they can be sure that you have the right to do certain things in a secure manner. Um, but you don't need to have, you know, basically this, these, this massive data breach that we're otherwise seeing across the entire internet as it is today. Um, so that's the kind of prelude, and that's partially why I've kind of joined NIM also. But on the question of artificial intelligence and zero-knowledge proofs, I think we're up against some completely different questions. And this is something that I've outlined in another um, essay that I put out earlier this year um, called Cryptopolitics and Update. Um, and here I talk through uh, the work primarily of Shafi Goldwasser, who is one of the uh, one of the cryptographers that um, developed the uh, you know early zero knowledge proof systems along with a couple of other colleagues and uh, the work of Louise Amour who I had the pleasure to be a colleague of briefly at Durham University Geography Department um, who works a lot on the ethics of machine learning algorithms and uh, in this essay I talk it's almost a kind of like I set these two these two, the work of these two people up against each other in a sense, um, because the argument that that Shafi Goldwasser makes mm -hmm. is that zero knowledge proofs will allow for the ethical implementation of machine learning technologies. Why? Because you, what zero knowledge proofs allows for is it allows for algorithms to compute data that is otherwise kept private. So you can kind of retain people's privacy, which means that, you know, a government or whoever else that might be snooping, you know, will not know anything about you, but you can still make that data available for machine learning algorithms to compute. Um, and, you know, I found that to be such a curious kind of solution, supposed solution to the ethical problem, because it kind of shows how outdated our understanding of privacy is now when we're in the context of algorithms, because, um, you know, we still think of privacy as, you know, the eyes of a person or the eyes of a government or something looking at something, right? And we've, and we're not thinking about privacy in the sense that maybe it's not a government looking at something, but it's an algorithm looking at it, right? 
And so in Shafi Goldwasser's kind of opinion, we've solved the ethical problem here because we can guarantee privacy while still making the data available for machine learning. So, there, so therefore, we're not hampering kind of progress in the development of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Um, but to my mind, it actually opens up a whole new set of ethical problems because we end up in a situation where we're developing uh, essentially a context, a scenario where algorithms, you know, machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence will have free reign and will end up kind of, in a sense, knowing so much more than, than, uh, than we do, you know, or it's a kind of deferral of intelligence. It's a kind of, you know, um, making the data available for computation, but not for uh, scrutiny in other ways. That's, so that's, that's super interesting because when you were going through explaining the, the magic of zero knowledge proofs, that's my summary of how it works. It's magic, but this, <laughs> so much of our modern economy, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, is built on the idea that you, you give away some data or identity of yourself and in return, you get something else, right? That may be access to a multi-sided platform where you're then shown ads and you're cross-subsidizing other people to be on the platform and so on. So much of the economy is built up in this, in this way that you give away data to receive something in return. Um, and if you, if you sever that connection, it breaks a huge number of business models. Um, it just breaks them they, they just don't work anymore um and that's really interesting the connection with artificial intelligence i hadn't i hadn't thought about it like that i can't pretend to understand how that would possibly work um but that sounds really really interesting that you can you can still get the benefits of that aggregation and computation of that data um but it's effectively um de-identified in a way i guess um well it's not just de-identified it's much more than that um the only other question that I have about this is, do you think that people really care about privacy that much? Or is this kind of a niche thing that um, insiders kind of care about, but the average person on the street isn't willing to go to the effort to engage in, a, in deciding bespoke privacy and how much data they give over to this service and so on? Um, that's quite a sceptical question, I know. I'm just curious about your thoughts on it. Do you think this will move into mainstream use? I think it absolutely will do. And, you know, if you had asked me maybe like five to eight years ago, then maybe I'd be a bit more like, yeah, I, I really don't know. But, it, you know, if you look at, I don't know how many new millions of users Signal has got in the past couple of years, right? Um, that's the evidence. I mean, that's evidence enough for me. So, you know, both that and then you just you're seeing more and more kind of cases where people are starting to realize the real world impact that surveillance has, you know, um, and potentially will have on them and their friends and so many other things. So like in the UK right now, there is actually a big scandal playing out around health data. Um, it turns out that the government was planning to sell the national health data to Palantir, the nicest company in the world. <laughs> Um, and, 
Uh, and there's there's actually quite a huge public outcry about that because they were trying to kind of do this deal pretty much on the sly. Um, and national health data, you know, was also going to include a lot of very sensitive data, including about mental health, including, you know, records of, you know, criminal records, um, a lot of things that actually are pretty, could be used for pretty nefarious purposes. Um, so people are starting to, I think care a lot more about privacy and I don't think that's going to go away. Um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, more kind of nitty gritty use cases and give, giving people kind of real world examples, you know, there's even, even things like credit ratings and credit scores and stuff like that. I think once you start talking about those things and, you know, people start thinking about, okay, where are these companies actually getting my information from? Um, and how do I even contest that? you know, is, you know, both that and also things like health insurance and so on. So for like, there's, I think there's a lot of kind of real world cases where people all of a sudden are going to be more and more um, uh, kind of careful and skeptical and providing technologies that, that are empowering for people to actually kind of um, uh, make some more kind of informed decisions in terms of their data, I think is going to, is really is going to be the future. I, I... Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective, like um, reading this week, you know, um, quotes, as you mentioned, kind of credit histories from the 1960s. And it seems like anyone that understands, you know, computerization is coming and, um, and we're kind of in a digital era, understands that uh, the way that these systems or this infrastructure is architected has implications for what kind of societal outcomes that you get. Um, but Darcy, I like your question about well, how does, you know, how does business think about this or how does other individuals think about it? Um, one final question before we wrap up uh, towards your point just now is, do you think there'll be uh policy directions on this or do you think it will be more like an individual uh or sort of you know a civilian collective response in this direction if you see it as something important um i think it's going to be very uneven actually i think some places we're going to be some we're going to see some really strong policy interventions and policy will take the lead and in other places it's going to come you know maybe from part maybe from civilian uh, society but I think also, like, you know, I wouldn't underestimate activist engineers. So, um, <laughs> like, you know, coming back to the other paper that you mentioned about the political economies of engineers, you know, that that was very much looking at how engineers try to kind of intervene into economies and economic policy. Um, but, you know, to trace kind of like the cypherpunk history, um, you know, kind of engineer interventions into the question of privacy, I think are, is, is a major thing as well and definitely will shape how things play out. Um, I want to give a little bit also a kind of quick perspective on my ideal scenario, let's say, and maybe also a little bit the kind of like uh, the NIM line on this stuff, which is, you know, that, uh, you know, privacy should cannot, you know, in the context of, of quite complex network technologies, privacy cannot just be an individual decision, you know, exactly because data and information about our, ourselves online is highly relational. 
So there actually does need to be quite a kind of collective engagement with these questions. And from the NIM perspective, you know, privacy should be a default. And if privacy is a default, then actually you can start to choose how and when you selectively reveal data for certain purposes. And this is where I think like, we can actually start imagining much more beautiful and interesting futures for machine learning and for artificial intelligence, um, thinking about them less as like a, um, as a kind of uh, out of control power that's kind of developing somewhere on some you know, huge Google data uh, center controlled areas, you know, and instead think of like, think of these collective artificial intelligences that we're each kind of feeding and growing and teaching in order to, to produce things that are actually beneficial for, for our societies. But it's a much more kind of like proactive engagement rather than like literal theft, right? rather than like our social lives and our realities literally just being kind of taken away from us. Um, so like, but, but in order for that to happen, we really do need to have privacy as a default, you know, that's the default layer, like, you know, just, just privacy. And then we can selectively reveal and collectively make decisions about how machine learning um, is deployed for different purposes. Darcy, did you have any final uh, questions or comments on that before we hear, I guess, where we can um, continue to follow Jaya's work and wrap up? I just think that's super interesting and I love that. I love that vision of the future. Um, and it it means in a sense that a lot of the, the business models that I mentioned before that break are still possible. It's just that people will have to decide to give away that data much more um, clearly. Um, it's a much more conscious decision. It, flip, it flips the equation, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, I just love the diversity of your work. I think it's great. You, you draw on so much, so many different um, literatures and so on. And I found it really informative reading through your work. So thanks for, thanks for joining. Thank you. And thanks so much for the questions and the engagement. I think we did a really nice loop from the imaginaries of decentralization to kind of our own future making and vision casting there. Um, and I'll absolutely um, provide links, but if there's a Twitter or a blog or something where people can, can keep track of you. Yeah. I mean, I think like Twitter and then I also run a, a, a little mailing list of kind of friends and, and close people that I keep in the loop of um, not just work that I've already produced, but kind of work that's coming and things that I'm thinking about at, at the time. It's, it's a kind of, you know, I guess I send something out every couple of months or so. So it's not like a super spammy type email list, but um, people are welcome to get in touch to get on that too. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's Jaya Papaya on Twitter and in fact on most places. <laughs> Excellent. So thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Jaya, Clara, Brecky, and Dr. Darcy Allen. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback on the podcast at rmitblockchain.io.